But with that, we want to turn now to the series that we started last week on the church. And I want to tell you about a, a video call that I had a few weeks ago with a pastor in Belgium. His name is Michael Foss. We connected through the Acts 29 network, and um, I had to actually look on a map to figure out where Belgium was. I knew it was in Europe somewhere, and and then I, I foolishly had to ask him, what what language do you speak? He, they speak both French and Dutch in Belgium, and he speaks uh, Dutch. And it was it was great to, to hear him and his story. The country of Belgium has a long history of influence from the Roman Catholic Church, but but decades ago, most people in that nation walked away from the from religion. And today, only about one percent of the country are born again Christians. Uh, but Michael was blessed to grow up in a Christian home. The wife whom he married actually grew up on the mission field. Um, she's from Belgium as well, but they, her family served on the mission field. And, and he and his wife felt called from the time of their marriage to spread the gospel. And they always figure, well, my wife, you know, went overseas. Maybe we'll go overseas and, and do missions work. Um, but about seven years ago, uh, Michael and a friend of his that had been following a, a preacher on the Internet decided to go to a conference in England to hear uh, a pastor by the name of Matt Chandler. They didn't know Matt Chandler was the president of the Acts 29 network. They didn't know they were going to an Acts 29 conference. But they got there and they learned about this global church planting network. And, and he and his wife began wondering, you know, we've always felt called to missions, but maybe the greatest need is right here in our home country of Belgium. And so they began to pray about that. Around that time, coincidentally, someone knew someone who knew someone and, and, some, and somebody from another village reached out to Michael and they said, we, we need a church in our village. Would you consider coming and moving here to help us start a church? And so after prayer and consideration, Michael and his family and another friend and their family moved to Longmark, Belgium about six years ago. And by God's grace, a church was planted, a little rural community, two towns together, are about 8000 people. And they now, after six years, gather together on Sundays with about 50 or 60 Christians. One of the amazing things about that little village that they didn't even know about is that outside the village is a, it was an old uh, military base where the government currently houses at any given time anywhere between two and three hundred refugees from Africa and from the Middle East. And so not only are they reaching uh, the, the citizens of Belgium, but now they're regularly sharing Christ and regularly welcome people, welcoming people into the church from, from Africa, from Middle Eastern nations, and they have this wonderful ministry to refugees. And the gospel is now going out in their little village, but, but through their work around the world. And as I talked with this brother and listened as he shared about this small, vibrant community of faith, as he shared about this little rural village in Belgium that I had never even heard of, as he talked about how he and the elder, the other elder work full-time jobs and, 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 and they are bivocational serving and leading the church, as they talked about how the Christians in their church serve and relate together as family and they hold each other accountable, as he talked about how they're reaching out to, to local refugees and to those in the village that are living secular lives. I, I just was so blessed. I just was encouraged to hear him and to talk with him and to be a small part of what God is doing in that regard. And, and what they are doing is not big. It's not flashy. You'll never hear anything on the internet about front light church, probably in Belgium. It'll probably never be written about, but it was a beautiful, it is a beautiful, pure, simple church proclaiming Christ and growing together as a church family. And, and what I heard about what's going on right now in that village is just what Jesus said he would do. What Jesus has been doing for the last 2,000 years, building his church, bringing in his sons and daughters. And that's what we're doing for these four weeks in our series on the church, is celebrating, recognizing the beauty, the priority, the necessity of the church. We looked last week at this definition that Matt and I put together on what is the church, and we said this. A local church is an organized and committed family of Christians led by elders and deacons who gather together regularly to worship Jesus Christ, sit under the teaching of God's word, practice baptism and the Lord's Supper, love and serve one another and live out and proclaim the gospel as a light to the world. We saw last week this image of the church as the bride of Christ, loved by Jesus, considered beautiful by Jesus. We're going to talk this morning about the church as the household of God. And we're going to talk this morning about how the church relates together as a family. Next week we'll look at this image of the church as the body of Christ, with Christ as his head. And we'll talk about how we grow and serve together as the body. 
And then lastly, we'll look at the church as the temple of God. And we'll look at the three purposes of the church for worship, discipleship, and evangelism. We believe in the church because Jesus said he would build his church and it cannot be stopped. And so we're going to trust the Lord Jesus. We believe in the Lord Jesus as our Savior and we believe in him as the head of the church. And I want to tell you this morning that if you are trusting in Christ, if you believe that Jesus is your Savior, that through His death and resurrection you have eternal life, you've been set free from a life of sin, you now belong to God, you are a member of the household of God. Listen to what the Word says in in Ephesians 2 verse 19. It says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Some of you remember the time when you didn't know God, when you were a stranger to God, when you felt alien You felt like you were an alien when it came to God and His people. You felt out of place. And that's where we all find ourselves in our natural state, cut off from God. Engulfed by our own sin and and unable to see the Lord, unable to know His love, and unable to know the community of faith. But now, through faith in Christ, we are citizens. Citizens of God's kingdom. Citizens of heaven who are living on earth, living in a foreign land, you might say now members of this embassy, the embassy of, of God's kingdom here on earth, the household of God, the church. We read here in the passage that it's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone of God's household. And so we ask ourselves as people of faith, are we resting on the cornerstone? We can ask ourselves as a church community, as elders, are we as a church resting on the cornerstone of Christ? But, but are you as an individual, as a, as a son or a daughter, is your life built on the cornerstone of Christ? Not your own understanding, not, not rules, not your own good works, not your own church attendance, but your life founded and grounded in Christ. So in a sense, all Christians are a part of the household of God. Part of the universal church. But theologians make a distinction between the universal church and the local church. So we can say that the the universal church is the true body of Christians across time, across place. All those that belong to God are part of the universal church. But the local church, as we are gathered here today, is a gathering of believers in a particular community of faith in a particular location. So while all Christians are part of the universal church, not all Christians may be part of a local church. Or another way that theologians understand this is the invisible church versus the visible church. The invisible church is the church as God sees it. God knows who belongs to Him, the true body of believers. He knows who are His. But the visible church is is the church only as we see it. The church as we see it on earth. Those who are part of the local church are part of the, the visible church. But there are some in the visible church who do not truly belong to God. That may not truly be part of the invisible church. And there are some, some Christians who, who truly know and love the Lord, but may not be part of the visible church. Do you, do you understand the distinctions? And so we're talking big picture about the universal, invisible church. All of God's sons and daughters. All those who have faith, faith in Christ. But we also believe that Christians are called to, to connect to a, a local church. To connect to a visible church. A visible, local household of God. And so we see this term household of faith or household of God a number of times in the New Testament. And and before we dig in, we're going to spend a lot of time this morning in 1 Timothy, by the way, if you want to open that up. We need to rightly understand this idea of household. Because some of us, when we think household, we think, oh, that's like a a, a mom and a dad and 2.5 kids and a dog and a white picket fence. It's a family. That's not what the New Testament means by household. In Greek The word oikios, household, is this broader, deeper word than just your immediate family. Okay? Don't think husband and wife and a couple of kids. In the ancient world, the household was the people you lived with, you shared your resources with, you worked with, you worshipped with. And, And household was kind of a mashup of family and business and community and religion all taking place in the home. And it began, of course, with the head of the household, the husband and his wife and their children. Some of those children would grow up and marry and have their own families. Some would move away, but some would stay in the household. 
And some of them maybe would be productive members, right? In the ancient world, you didn't have like young adults living in their parents' basement just mooching, right? These were like productive members. They engaged in the family business, worked on the family farm, a part of the household. And so you'd have, you know, the head of the household and his children and wife and and their children. And so you'd have children and grandchildren and parents. You might have in-laws. An ancient household could be as many as four or five different generations. Might also include extended family. You might have a sister who never got married or an aunt who was a widow and her children. And so now you've got nieces and nephews all living together. Maybe some cousins that were orphaned. And and so you see household is, is now being built out. But it's not just biological family in the ancient world. You'd have servants and bond servants who worked for the household. Many of them may have worked for the household for generations. And these were not just hired servants doing menial tasks. These were valued members of the community. The property manager, the farm manager, the kitchen supervisor, the children's teacher, all part of the household. And many of them would have families of their own living on the estate. And some of their kids would grow up and marry kids from the, from the biological family. And now you've got a, an intergenerational Beautiful picture of the family of God, the household of faith. And again, you could have dozens of people, multiple generations. And in many ways, the household in the ancient world was a microcosm of society. The people you lived with, worked with, worshipped with, fought off enemies with. A community. It was your livelihood. Yes, it was your religion, but it was your safety, your security. This is your tribe. This is your tribe when the New Testament talks about the household and the household in the ancient world was led by the, the oldest male patriarch. And whether or not you were biologically related, you shared his name, you shared his identity as part of the household. You'd say, I'm part of the household of John or the household of Simon or the household of Gaius. And so as we think about our connection in the community of faith, in the household of God, we remember that as Christians, God is our father. God is the head of the household. We are his people, the church. And so we now, as members of the household, have the name of God the Father. He's the one that gives us our identity. Through Him we have community. And so that's why we refer to it as the household of God, because we belong to Him, part of His household. Now some people don't have this view of the church, right? For some people, church is just like a jiffy lube. You stop by every other week, you fill up the tank, you get your fluids checked, you maybe make some small talk and some chit-chat, but then you go off and you live your life, Jiffy Lube doesn't have anything to do with your, your week to week, right? They're not involved in, in your life, in your family. There's no community, no relationship, no, no relational investment at the, the local service station. There's no accountability with your mechanic, right? He's not checking in on you to see how he can pray or to see how your marriage is going. But the household mentality, not the service station mentality, it's the household mentality that's God's vision for the church. To be an interdependent community that are invested in one another. And this is what we see in the book of 1 Timothy. That's how This household concept is all over the book of 1 Timothy. Partly, I believe it's partly because Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, a, a man that he considers to be his spiritual son. We know from scripture that Timothy heard the gospel from his mother and from his grandmother. That he came to Christ at a young age. But Timothy's dad was an unbeliever. He was a Gentile. And so when Paul met Timothy, Paul takes him under his wing, Paul trains him in Christ, trains him in Christian ministry, and Paul now considers Timothy his spiritual son. And so he's writing this letter to Timothy, thinking of the church as the household of God. Look at chapter 3 if you have your Bibles open. If not, it should be on the screen. 1 Timothy 3.14, Paul writes this to his, his son Timothy. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Do you get that? Paul says, I'm writing this letter so that you know what to do and how to act and how to live and how to lead and how to behave in the household of God. The household of God is the church of the living God. I love that. So many people think that church is a stale, stagnant, boring place. But this is the church of the living God. The living God is here in His people, in our midst. God is alive, and that means that that His church is alive. Amen? The church is described here as the pillar and the buttress of truth. Now, pillar, maybe you know what what is. Buttress, you might need some help. Look at this picture here. So we know that pillars, these are both architectural terms. The pillars are, are what holds up the roof, right? 
They, they hold the weight that's being pushed down from the building. But a buttress is set up to support the weight that's being pushed out. Right, And so both the pillar and the buttress are, are essential to hold up the roof, to hold up the structure. And the universal church and the local churches that operate on earth, we read here, are pillars of truth, are buttresses of truth. That means support beams. The church of God is what upholds, what exalts the truth of the gospel. And without the church, God's, God's gospel and, and God's truth on earth would just come crumbling, crumbling down. We stand as a pillar of God's truth, exalting the gospel, proclaiming the gospel. And the church is meant to be a profound witness to a watching world. The gospel brings the life of the gospel to a dying world. As we stand as pillars of God, pillars of His truth. And so this morning, I want to unpack for you in the next few minutes, four different aspects of life in the household of God. You can see there on the screen, if you have your bulletin, We're going to talk this morning about what relationships look like in the household. We're going to talk about members in the household, leadership in the household, and then finally accountability in the household of God. So first of all, what are these relationships like in the household? Again, we've said that God is our father, right? If if I call Andy Dance father and my brother Jason and my sister Melanie also call him father, what does that make us? Makes us siblings, right? We're brothers and sisters, And the beautiful truth of the gospel is that, yes, when you trust in Christ, your personal sins are forgiven. Yes, your individual name is written in the book of life. But more than that, you are adopted into God's family. And so, friends, if you call Jesus Savior, that means you call God Father. And that means we now call one another brother and sister. And the beautiful picture of the gospel is is not an individual faith. And yes, Jesus is your personal Savior, but He is also our corporate Savior. We come together through faith. We find forgiveness and new life. We find the promise of eternity. And we find even now a home, a family. In the book Total Church, I, I like this quote. You've probably heard me say it before. They say this, We are not saved individually and then choose to join the church as if it were some club or support group. Christ died for His people and we are saved when by faith we become part of the people for whom Christ died. Christianity is not an individual religion. It is very much a communal religion. And so hear me, a Christian without a church is kind of like a brother without any siblings. It just doesn't quite make sense, right? You can't be a brother without siblings. It just doesn't quite make sense. And a Christian without a church is incomplete. And so the household of God, we treat one another like family, if you flip over to chapter 5 of 1 Timothy, look at, at the first three verses of 1 Timothy chapter 5. It says this, giving us instructions, again, how to behave in the household of God. And here we see how to relate together. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. This is what relationships in the church are designed to look like. Now, for some of you, the idea of family, the idea of siblings, that's just tension. That's just the people that you feel awkward around when you get together for a holiday once a year or every other year, right? That's just the people who you disagree with about politics, who you argue about, the people who you you fight over how to take care of mom and dad once they they get to that phase of life. But but that's not the, the biblical understanding of sibling, right? That's not what family's intended to be. That's family infused with the implications of a fallen world. God's vision for family means love, means that we encourage one another, means that we're committed to one another, means that we walk in purity together, means that we honor those that that are more mature, those that are seasoned, those that are older than us, means we serve one another, means we give generously to one another. We relate together in the household of God as family. The elders uphold what we call our expanded doctrinal statement. So we have about a three-page document that unpacks all that we believe about the Bible and about theology. And this is what it says, point 12 of our expanded doctrinal statement says that God values the family unit and organizes His church to reflect this model, both relationally and structurally. 
God intended the family, husband, wife, and children to have priority as the initial community where grace is dispensed. Marriage in the home is designed to reflect God's love for his people and child rearing designed to reflect God's nurture for his people. Listen to this. God's people, adults and children, single and married, are joined together according to this model as the family of God. And we go on to say that in both the home and the church, men are designed to stand in the places of leadership and authority. This beautiful picture that that God has designed the family and the church to, to be reflective of one another. That as we relate in the home should indicate how we relate together in the family. To love and nurture one another. To value one another as family. And yes, that means, as the scripture indicates, that husbands are called to, to lead, to love and serve in their home. Imitating Christ as leaders, self-sacrificial leaders in their home. And that means in the church that elders stand loving and serving, modeling Christ as the spiritual leaders of the home. See, in the household of faith, our relationships are an outworking of spiritual family. Why? Because we all call God Father. And so we love and serve and wrestle and sometimes sometimes irritate one another as brothers and sisters, as a family in the household of God. Secondly, I want to talk for a minute about members in the household. Now again, we've defined in our definition of the church that the household is an organized, committed, defined group of people. And as we said, all Christians are members of the universal church. We'll talk next week about the body of Christ. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit to 1 Corinthians 12 that we'll look at next week. It says this about the universal church. Just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, all were made to drink of one spirit. And so again, this image that, that all people who call Jesus Savior, all Christians are part of the body of Christ, are all members of His body. But we're also talking this morning about membership, not just in the universal church, but in the local church. Now we need to affirm that church is more than just a, a Sunday service. I would encourage you to get creative. Don't, don't say you're going to church. Say you're going to worship Jesus. You're going to gather together with God's people. You're, you're going to, to hear from the Word and, and to sing praises to God, right? This is a part of church. This is the gathering of the church. This is, in some sense, the most, the most critical, most vital part of church life as we gather in the name of Jesus. But the church is more than just people attending a service. There's commitment. There's investment in one another. And, and that's a defined group of people. If church is meant to be a family, a household, that's a defined group of people. Right? If somebody says to you, name all the people in your family, you're not going to struggle. I mean, I immediately say, well, my wife Karen and Simon and Oliver and Jillian and Sybil. If somebody says, well, what about your extended family? I say, well, my, my mom and dad and my older sister Melanie, my younger brother Jason and their families and their kids, right? Like we know who's in our family. There's something to be said for, for having an understanding of, of who is and isn't a part of the family. And so it's important, I believe, in the local church to have membership to help clarify who is it that that is in our household. Now, what is church membership? Some come from different uh, backgrounds or denominations, don't understand what that is. For some, it's a very negative word, right? The members are the people that are mean to everybody else and that run everything and tell other people what to do. In, In the book, Rediscover Church, that we've been using as a resource in our series, they say this about church membership. Church Membership is the church's affirmation and oversight of a Christian's profession of faith and discipleship, combined with the Christian's submission to the church and its oversight. This is the particular group of Christians that I'm inviting into my life and asking to take responsibility for my Christian life. If I'm discouraged, it's now their responsibility to encourage me. If I stray from the narrow path, it's their responsibility to correct me. If I'm in dire financial straits, it's their responsibility to look after me. Some of you are like, I like that last part. Maybe I'll join the church, right? Look, we've, we've blessed and served many, many of you, whether you're a member or not, right? We, we give and serve generously with one another. Now, I know many of you are asking a question, because I've heard you ask, ask it to me. Well, what's the biblical basis for church membership? Now, look, I grant you the, the, the words church membership will not appear in any translation of your New Testament, but the concept is very much there. 
We see lots of indications that churches in the New Testament were a defined and committed group of people that had an understanding of who belonged to their local church. We see this all the way as early as Acts chapter 2, when those who came to Christ were baptized, and it says that they counted the people that were baptized, and they were added to their church. They were baptized, and they became a part of that local church in Jerusalem. In Matthew 18, Jesus gives instructions for how to remove someone who's persisting in sin, in sinful behavior in the church. And so if Jesus is giving instructions for how to remove somebody from the local church, that also means there must be a way to accept someone into the church. What Jesus calls there in the passage, binding and loosing people from the kingdom, from the church community. Paul gives similar instructions for removing someone from the church who persists in unbiblical behavior. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're not going to look at it this morning, but I told you this household concept is all over 1 Timothy. There's specific parameters given in 1 Timothy chapter 5 for enlisting widows into a, a special program in the church to care for their physical needs. And so it seems likely to me that if they're enrolling people into this church care program, these would have been widows who were already on their membership list, you might say. Now look, I do want to say this. Formally joining a local church is not necessary for salvation. Some of you, okay, if I die tomorrow, I'll still go to heaven. I would even say it may not be a biblical mandate, but it is a really, really good idea. It is a wise thing to do. It's a wise way to walk out your faith in partnership with a designated, not just a universal, but a designated local household of faith. Yes, all Christians are members of the universal church. The universal church is the very foundation of membership in a local church. But we can say that, that membership in a local church is a demonstration of our membership in the local church, right? When, when I joined Living Hope Church, and yes, my wife and I went to the class, and I happen to be teaching it, but I did attend it. And then we signed the same commitment that, that all of you have signed, or that many of you have signed. It demonstrating my membership in the universal church. Now, when we're looking at the biblical perspective on church membership, we also need to keep in mind that when we read the New Testament, when we read about the early church, really the, the universal church was the local church when the whole thing first got started, right? I mean, if you lived in Thessalonica when Paul, Silas, and Timothy arrived and proclaimed Christ and you decided you wanted to follow Jesus, you didn't then say, well, let me visit a few different websites and read some doctrinal statements and I'm going to watch a few live streams and if they pass the live stream test, then I'll attend a few local churches here in Thessalonica and then maybe I'll go to one or two new newcomers classes at, at some of these different churches in Thessalonica and then I'll decide which church to join. It didn't work that way, right? If you heard the gospel in Thessalonica in the first century and you had faith, you were baptized, you joined a universal church and you also joined the church of Thessalonica. That was the only game in town. Right? And so baptism very much was entrance and membership into the local church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper continue to be central to church life even today. In our Protestant tradition, we refer to these as ordinances because they were ordained by Christ. Baptism, ordained by Jesus as the public entrance into the faith, into the universal church that is confirmed by the local church. And the Lord's Supper... This meal that we'll celebrate at the end of service today, it's a family meal. It's not an individual meal. The elders would caution you not to partake of the elements and just, and just have communion by yourself in your closet because there's no one to commune with. That's why we call it communion because it's an opportunity for us to commune with God and commune with one another as we feast on the body and blood of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul would write to that church and tell them to wait Wait until you gather together as a church and take the Lord's Supper together as a church, as a household. And we'll do that together, celebrating our love for the Lord, celebrating our reliance on His death and resurrection. We're going to do that this morning. There's lots of images and, and analogies for the church in the New Testament. One of them is a flock of sheep. And so we can look at church membership as coming into the sheep pen. The church is described as the body of Christ. We could see membership like the ligaments that hold the various parts of the body together. Church is, is a family and membership is like sharing the same address. This is where I live. This is where I connect. The church, we read in scripture, is a holy nation living in a foreign land. And membership is like registering with the embassy. Going to the embassy in, in Belgium if you were there on work. 
and saying, I'm an American, I want to register here and make sure that even though I'm living in this foreign land, I'm registering with the local embassy as a citizen of heaven. And membership seals that. How do we do membership here at Living Hope? If you'll permit me a, a bit of a footnote here at Living Hope, the first step to membership is to attend. So praise God, you're all on your way. And then you begin to settle in. You begin to get connected. You begin to meet people. You begin to feel like, hey, I think I'm a part of this community. And then you come to one of our Discovering Living Hope classes. And in that class, we'll review our vision and our values and our mission. We'll talk about our beliefs and our ministries and our leadership structure. And you'll learn about what it means to make a commitment. Um, by the way, keep your eye out in the bulletin in the next couple of weeks. We're going to have one of these classes at the end of March. Love to have you join us. Whether or not you're interested in membership, uh, I trust it will be beneficial. After you come to that class, then you meet with an elder and you say, Hey, brother, I think I'm ready to take this step. And you'll sit down with one of our elders and you'll review the Ten Commitments and you'll sign your name. That, that cultural expression as you sign your name. Yes, I affirm this and I am now joining Living Hope Church. Church membership at Living Hope comes with certain rights and certain responsibilities. At Living Hope, it means that if you're a member of the church, you have the right to nominate and to confirm people to serve as elders and deacons. It means that you yourself have the right to serve as an elder or deacon. It means that you have the right to initiate, to take part in the process. Should there be ever any conflicts or any disputes at Living Hope Church, the members are the ones that are involved in that process of resolution. But there's also responsibilities when you join a local church. You're expected to serve and give and support the church. Right? Church membership is not like joining a country club. And anybody want to admit it? Anybody's a part of a, a country club? All right, how about a pool membership? Who's got a pool membership? Come on, some of you. I know, so I've seen some of you at Bonaire. I know some of you are members of the Summit Grove pool, right? When you join a pool or a country club or a community group, right? You're, that, you're now like high status. You go into that country club, you go into that pool, like you're expecting them to have the chairs ready, the lifeguard to be there. You go up to the snack bar. They serve you. You don't serve them, right? It's the opposite in the local church, right? The members of the church, we're the ones expected to serve. We're the ones that not only have rights in the local church, but now we have a responsibility in the local church. And part of making that commitment is a commitment to serve, to give, to contribute to what God is doing here at Living Hope. And we're so, so thankful for those that have signed our commitment of participation. And, and we recognize that there are some here today, many that have, are a part of Living Hope, that I may never feel led to sign a formal commitment, but you are still, I want you to know, you're still a vital part of our church community. You're still our brothers and sisters in Christ. You're still growing together with us in faith. And so that's why at Living Hope we talk about active participants and committed participants. Or maybe partner is a better word. You're actively partnering with us in ministry, and some have made the decision to, to, to commit to partnership in ministry. But either way, if you're here, you're still part of the family of faith. I want you to know that we currently have 95 adults that have signed our commitment of participation. And they're a wonderful blessing. And I emailed them this week and I said, hey, I'm teaching on membership Sunday. I said, send me a sentence or two about why you joined Living Hope Church. Some of them forgot to read the part about a sentence or two. But I got loads of good response. And here, I'm just going to read for you some of the responses, un unedited why people joined Living Hope Church. Here's what they said. I became a committed participant of Living Hope because we knew this church was a good match for our family and we wanted it to be our home church for years to come. It allows the leaders and other members to know you are linking arms with them and dedicated to the relationship, whatever may come up, good or bad. Someone else said, we were looking for a church where we could serve and I wanted to be the first committed participant who signed the form. And by the way, the guy that sent that, he and his wife were the very first people nearly 15 years ago. So that was his motivation. He was like, I want to be first. And they are. I've still got it in my desk drawer with their name and their date signed from, from 2007. This person said, church membership means committing to, being accountable to, loving, supporting, and belonging to the body of believers. Someone else said, I have chosen to submit myself under the spiritual leadership here to shepherd me, care for me, love me, disciple me, grow me, admonish me, and help me to endure so that I finish well. I will keep our elders, deacons accountable, encourage them, and help them so that they can lead the flock well. Someone else said this, 
I saw each week the time and care that each volunteer puts into making everything run smooth. And that made me realize that God wanted me to step up and do my share. I committed and signed a piece of paper promising myself and the church to give my heart, time, and energy to all that needs done and all that the Lord hands me. And to get my butt up and out the door with four clean, fed, happy children and a cup of coffee before 10 a.m. every Sunday. I thought it was interesting that she said before 10 a.m. That must be like a personal goal. Get the kids up and dressed in two church before 10. Somebody else said, I personally became a committed member because Living Hope is my family and I needed accountability in my life. I wanted the church to know they could absolutely count on me. I wanted my wife and children and I to be a part of something way bigger than ourselves. And it gives me great happiness to be a part of Living Hope Church. Someone else wrote, being a church member means that I am making a formal commitment before the Lord to be held accountable for my beliefs and actions and also to be a means of grace in the lives of our congregation. Here's another one. Church membership symbolizes my belief and commitment to God's teaching within that church. This person said, I became a committed participant because I wanted oversight in my life and someone to keep watch for my soul and the souls of my family. To me, church membership means I am committed to growing and pouring into this body of believers. And then finally, someone said, I became a committed participant because I wanted not just to attend church, but I wanted to commit and interact with the local body God has called me to. I wanted to use my gifts and talents to serve the local body of Christ. I also wanted to be under elders who would hold me accountable. Man, I hope that that was as much of a joy for you to hear as it was a joy for me to, to read to you. And we are so thankful for all of you that are involved and invested and committed here at Living Hope. And I want you to know that if you're an active part of Living Hope Church, if you call this your church home, we'd love for you to prayerfully consider formally joining the church. And any of the elders would love to meet with you, to talk with you further about it, about what it means to take that step of membership. But I also want to say that, that membership serves a functional purpose of determining, as I mentioned earlier, who's eligible to serve as elders and deacons. And so we're going to turn now to kind of this third area of, of the household, leadership in the household. And it's our members that are involved in determining who is installed as elders and deacons. Look, leadership in the household of God in the churches is not unique. Any healthy functioning household has to have an organization and leadership and rules and structure. Otherwise, it's just a mob, right? Here's what we say in our expanded doctrinal statement about leadership in the church. God designs and equips all Christians for ministry and some to lead in the church as elders and deacons. God has given the office of elder or overseer, supported by the office of deacon, to provide primary leadership in the local church. A plurality of elders should share the burden of pastoral care. God intends leadership offices in the church to be filled by men, yet women have equal value in the kingdom and should be valued equally in the church. Whether male or female, each person's calling and role differs according to God's design, yet each brings an irreplaceable, irreplaceable contribution to healthy church life and ministry. So elders serve as the core of leadership here at Living Hope. And we see that in Scripture. We see that in, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which I'm going to read in a minute. Our church charter, the, the founding documents of the church, state that elders have final responsibility and authority to lead and shepherd the church. And that's elders plural. The five elders here at Living Hope serve as a plurality. We share authority. Now, as a pastor, Pastor Matt and I, we are what we call vocational elders. We serve on the church staff. But we are part of the elder team. We have no greater authority than any of the other elders. We serve with the elders. And I will tell you this, we submit to the elders. As the lead pastor, I have the privilege of serving as the lead elder. And I, I, I serve on a plurality of the elder team. What we call the first among equals. But again, I am accountable to the elder team. And then we have our five deacons who are invaluable to support us as elders in managing the ministry of the church. You can look at, at the work of elders. We are, we're sheep just like you, but we serve under the chief shepherd as, as shepherds here of this congregation to lead the church by example, to feed the church through the teaching of the word, to protect the church from false doctrine and threats, to care for the church by encouraging and counseling those that are hurt and weak, and to seek out other Sheep to come into the flock, to seek out the lost. 
First Timothy 3, as Paul is unpacking this vision for the household of God, he says this about elders. We find a very similar passage in the book of Titus. Paul would write this by the power of the Holy Spirit. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. I believe this biblical vision for for elders as leaders in the church can be summarized as as qualifications in five areas. And they all start with P because that sounded nice to me. The first one is is an elder is, is, is a man of God that pursues Christ. That means elders are called to be mature, not new converts, to hold firmly to the word of God. Secondly, elders are called to prioritize their families. We read here that they are to be dedicated to their their wife, investing in their children, a good manager of his home, leading his family to Christ. Thirdly, a man of pure character, not open to accusations, self-controlled, disciplined, not overindulging or greedy, not arrogant, loving what is good. I love this thought there about a good reputation with outsiders. I've told you guys before, you want to truly know who I am. I gave you permission any day of the week, go knock on my neighbor's doors, ask my neighbors about me. That's the best way to know who I or any of the other elders are. Fourth is peaceful relationships. We're called to be men that are gentle, hospitable, loving, well thought of by outsiders. And then fifthly, to be men that have pastoral gifting. That means all of the elders need to be able to to teach sound doctrine, to refute those who oppose the truth, to manage and care for the church as an overseer. In Titus, the word is used steward. A steward means the manager of a household. Again, it's that household concept. Every, Every large household estate has a steward to manage the household. And there's a correlation between a man's ability to care and shepherd and love and serve and lead in his home and a qualified elder's ability to do that in the household of God. Now we're not going to read it, but but First Timothy three goes on to talk about deacons, and we see a very similar type of, of qualifications that they're also called to be dignified, to hold the faith with a pure conscience, to be the husband of one wife, to manage their children and their own household well. And again, deacons are invaluable to us in managing the ministry of the, the church. They support the elders, they enable us to focus on overseeing the people, teaching the truth, and caring for those in need. And it's directly after this section outlining leadership in the church that we get to that verse we read earlier in in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, where Paul says, look, I want you to know how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. See, it's the elders and deacons of the church that help us as a community. And yes, I'm including myself in that because I'd be a complete mess without the other elders around me. It's the elders and deacons that help us know how to behave as the household of God. Because any thriving, healthy organization needs leadership. And I'm so thankful for the leader. Sometimes I hear or read about solo pastors in churches, and I'll be honest, it sounds awful. It sounds like a complete disaster. I remember when Living Hope was first planted. We had an informal leadership team, but I was the only elder. We had no deacons, and it was lonely. I'm telling you, I I would not want to go back to that phase of church life. After the first year, we received members at Living Hope, and then we installed Phil and Sean and Russ. They were our first deacons. And those deacons served alongside of me for, for, for the next year of the church. And then Craig was set in as our very first elder. What, what a glory after some time off to have him serving again as an elder 15 years later. Remember those early elders meeting? An elders meeting meant that I would drive down Hunt Valley and Craig and I would have lunch. That was our elders meeting. Now we have three hour meetings on a Tuesday night. <laughs> I remember, um, as I thought about elders and deacons, I remember a time in, in ministry here at Living Hope years ago when somebody had concerns about, about me. And they, they brought it to the elders of the church. And the elders of the church said, we're going to go meet with this ministry leader and hear his concerns about you. 
And I said, okay, that sounds good. When do you want to schedule it? I'll, I'll be there. They said, no, no, Tim, you're not invited to this meeting. I said, what do you mean? I, they said, no, we're going to meet with him on our own. And that was, that was a long week to wait for that meeting to be scheduled. But I learned something wonderful going through that trial, which is that God has called me to submit to my elders and to trust my elders. And I learned to trust them, to trust them. I was thinking as well about our team of elders and deacons and how God carried us through this season of COVID. And you may know friends or you may have heard stories about churches that experienced great division and turmoil during the last two years of the pandemic. But I want you to know Living Hope has had tremendous unity as elders and deacons. And that was not easy. It has not been an easy two years for us to find unity. We had many long meetings and we had to first and foremost consider our biblical convictions, but then we also had to look at state guidelines and CDC recommendations. You guys remember that one meeting we had, we weren't, we weren't gathering indoors, and so we were meeting outside under a pavilion, and, 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 and then the sun went down and got dark, and then the drizzle rain that was happening got harder and harder, and we were, here we are huddled under the dark, under this pavilion, and the rain was pouring so hard that we gradually had to move our chairs further and further into the middle. I think we broke the six-foot rule because we were getting wet. And it was this wonderful moment of joy sitting in the, in the dark rain with these brothers talking through how we were going to lead in this season of, of COVID. And I reflected back on that recently, and I asked our elders and deacons recently, I said, how do you think we made it through this season? How did we maintain unity? And this is the kinds of things they said. They said, well, because we know each other. And we like each other. And we trust each other. We trust God's work in each other. So thankful for God's vision of plural leadership. Of godly, unified elders supported by a team of deacons. This is God's vision for leadership in the household of faith. Real quick, lastly, I want to talk about this concept of accountability. It is important. might not be the top ten things you want to hear about or read about, but we need accountability, right? Because those who live together in a household are called to keep one another accountable. There are rules and expectations. Anybody live with a father growing up who said something like, like, if you live under my roof, you'll live by my rules, right? Anybody have a dad like, anybody keep your hand up if you've said that yourself to your kids, yeah, right? There's expectations, there's accountability in the household, and that's good, and that's right. We're called as brothers and sisters to confess our sins to one another, to pray for one another. Look at what it says in Galatians chapter 6 about this idea of accountability in the household. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourselves, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then jumping down to verse 10, Paul would write, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So this accountability just means relationship. Just means praying and serving and speaking into one another's lives. But it also means church discipline. Church discipline is just a part of church discipleship. And just like there are certain expectations for godly living and safety in your home, and you don't allow your children to set fires in their bedroom, right? Scripture gives us expectations and boundaries in the household of God. First Timothy actually addresses church discipline in the household of faith. In First Timothy 5, we're not going to read it now. But in First Timothy 5, it actually addresses church discipline as it relates to elders. And elders are called to a stricter standard of accountability in the church and called to public discipline. But here's how one ministry defines healthy church discipline. The ministry called Nine Marks, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. And they, they say this. In the broadest sense, church discipline is everything the church does to help its members pursue holiness and fight sin. Everything that we do in our life groups, and our accountability groups, encouraging one another, praying for one another, that's part of church discipline. But they go on to say that in a narrower sense, church discipline is the elders correcting sin in the life of the body including the possible final step of excluding a profession Christian from membership in the Lord's Supper because of serious, unrepentant sin. You may say, well, where did this ministry nine marks get that from? Well, they got it from Jesus. Matthew 18, Jesus defines and outlines the concept of protecting purity and maintaining and upholding biblical expectations in the local church. And Jesus would say, if your brother sins against you, 
go tell him his fault between you and him alone. Right? Deal with it privately. Talk to one another as brothers and sisters. Be respectful. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Friends, listen, church discipline, it's not about punishment. It's not about retribution. The goal is reconciliation. The goal is to bring brothers and sisters into community. You have a hard conversation with a friend, with a brother or sister in hopes that they will see the word of God and they will repent. See, church discipline is intended to expose a weakness or a sin in someone's life, to warn them. To call them, to remind them of God's holiness and to call them to repentance and forgiveness. And this process of accountability also protects the church so that other vulnerable Christians don't look and see, well, he's doing that with his wife and getting away with it. I guess it's okay for me. No, no, we maintain purity because a household of love and faith and commitment has expectations and a standard. And so we need the church. We need one another to hold one another accountable to Christ-like living. And so we've seen this morning the call to relationships. Brothers and sisters in the church loving and serving and giving to one another. And there, yes, is a place for membership in, in the church universal. But even here in the local church, as we commit to God's work with one another. And leadership in the local church. Elders and deacons that humbly serve and lead together in reflection of Christ. And yes, accountability as we lovingly hold one another accountable to live and to follow the call of Jesus in our lives. Amen. This, I believe, is God's vision for the household of God. And as the worship team comes, we're going to prepare our hearts to worship again. And we're going to do that by coming up to the table. Right. Every every good house has to have a table where the family can gather and eat. And this is the family table. The Lord's Supper is the family table where the family of God comes together to eat together, to nourish ourselves on the work of Christ. Jesus, the cornerstone of the household of God, has given his body and his blood. And that's what holds us together. And so we're going to pray in a minute and ask that the Holy Spirit would fill these elements, that as we eat them, they would be to us the body and blood of Christ, that as a family we would be nourished together.